Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello and welcome to our podcast. This is the Immigration Advocates Network. And today we are speaking to Emily Good, staff attorney at the Advocates for Human Rights. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. It's happy to be here. Terrific. And Emily will be talking about a recent BIA, Board of Immigration Appeals decision, matter of ARCG, which is cited as 26 INN Decision 388. So, Emily, why don't we start with a brief introduction of you? Um, You've been here before. We have basically a series of asylum case law podcasts, and uh, we'd like to hear a little bit more about what you're working on these days and what your job entails. Yeah, well, I have done a number of these podcasts. Part of the work that I do here at the Advocates is on asylum cases. We do a lot of Placing asylum cases with volunteer attorneys, and thats I've been at the Advocates for 11 years now, and that's the majority of what I've done here. Um, Some of our work and some of the work that I've done also entails domestic violence laws and legal reform related to domestic violence. And so particularly this case, ARCG, that addresses both asylum and domestic violence is kind of directly in the crosshairs of the work that I do at the Advocates and I'm continuing to do. I also am an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota Law School, helping to teach the Immigration and Human Rights Clinic, and one of our cases actually is, hopefully, will be positively influenced by this decision. Well, thank you. I I hope so, too. So let's set the stage a a bit. Maybe you could start with a brief review of last year's decisions, a matter of MEVG and matter of WGR, which we discussed in a previous podcast and uh, which are cited in the case that we'll talk about today. Right. MEVG and WGR, which came out in February of 2014, actually, it feels a lot longer ago than that. They sought, those two cases sought to clarify the board's prior precedent on particular social group. And what MEVG and WGR did was to say that when you're establishing a social group, there needs to be particularity, um, that that social group is discrete and has definable boundaries, and that there is it is socially distinct. And previously, the prior case law from the board, um, SEG, had talked about social visibility, which caused a lot of confusion, and there was a lot of conflicting case law between the circuits where people were trying to interpret this, and some circuits were saying, Um, SEG just didn't make sense and we're not applying it. So the board clarifies and says, no, 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 we don't mean ocular visibility. We mean socially distinct that um, whatever the particular social group that's being articulated needs to be perceived as a group by society. And so the case that we'll be talking about today is really one of the first cases to where the board applies their own standard in a new particular social group case. Thank you. And just by way of background, can you talk a a bit about matter of RA as well? Because the board goes through some lengths to describe the sort of strange and political history of matter of RA. Right. And matter of RA has sort of been hanging over asylum claims based on domestic violence for basically the last 15 years in a semi-unresolved fashion. 
Matter of RA originally was a case um, involving a woman who had suffered domestic violence, sought asylum, was granted by the immigration judge. The government appealed that case. It went to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and um, they reversed the immigration judge. And then in 2001, the attorney general um, vacated that decision by the board and said, I'm going to take this under advisement, and we're going to promulgate rulemaking because clearly this is an area where we need more guidance. Um, and then it sat. <laughs> and then in 2005, um, the Attorney General, at the time that would have been John Ashcroft, remanded the case back to the Board of Immigration Appeals saying, there's rulemaking process. We want you to reconsider this case in light of the new rulemaking, which never actually happened. We never actually got any sort of rulemaking related to domestic violence asylum claims. And so ultimately, um, what happened is then another Attorney General, I think we're up to three now if you're following along, ended up sending the case back. They got an agreement with the government, um, and they, she was, this individual was granted asylum in 2009. Unfortunately, um, fortunately for her, she was granted asylum. Unfortunately for everybody who had been waiting for either a precedential decision or rulemaking or just some kind of clarity, um, we received none of those things. And so... There was a Department of Homeland Security brief that was filed um, both in RA and then there was another one filed in a similar case called Matter of LR that laid out the social group that essentially becomes the social group here in ARCG. And so everyone has really been relying on the language in that Department of Homeland Security brief um, and the fact that RA was granted asylum, but none of that's been precedential. And so um, it's pretty exciting that we land here with a case that actually tells us something and is published that we can rely on. Great. So so the issue in this case is basically whether domestic violence can be the basis of an asylum claim. <clears throat> Broadly, yes. <laughs> you want to talk a little bit more narrowly about the issues raised, or shall we get into the facts? Um, well, I would just say that the issue raised in this case is whether... Um, Married women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship is a valid particular social group. And it's, they keep that issue pretty narrow. Um, and so, yes, I think this case gives us a really good guidepost on can domestic violence be a basis for asylum? I think the answer to that question is yes. But as we'll talk about more, the case does stay somewhat narrow. And to that end, let's talk a bit about their focus on on the facts and this narrowly drawn category of, of asylum applicants who may qualify. So the facts of this case are, I mean, they're particularly egregious, which just as a parallel, were also the case for the facts in matter of RA. Um, this applicant for asylum was married young. She was married at 17 years old and suffered what is described in the BIA decision as repugnant abuse by her husband, um, including weekly beatings. Um, she had her nose broken by him. He threw paint thinner at her, which burned her breast. He raped her. And these are only the things that are summarized in the BIA decision. So I think we can assume that there's probably a lot of other abuse that was documented. The um, BIA decision also summarized that she tries to leave. Um, she goes and stays in a different part of the country for a few months. 
husband follows her there, convinces her to come home. She also stays with another, with her father. Husband goes there, threatens to kill her if she doesn't come back with him. And on multiple occasions, she contacts the police who repeatedly say, we don't interfere in marital relationships. They even come to her home one time um, after the husband hits her in the head and they don't arrest him. So the facts of this case are really pretty, um, they're pretty outstanding in the sense that she suffers really serious abuse over a long period of time. She tries to get help from the police who repeatedly refuse. She tries to relocate unsuccessfully on repeated occasions. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, we can talk about this later, but I found it remarkable that the government was even seeking a remand. It seems that every single, you know, you've checked the box on, on every aspect of an asylum claim here, and yet there still remains some question for the government. Can you talk a bit about what was agreed upon in terms of the elements of an asylum case and then what the board focused on? Well, importantly, at the beginning, they do note that um, the respondent was found to be a credible witness, which, of course, um, credibility is a critical factor in any asylum case. And so the fact that they found her credible means that there's no dispute here about whether what she told them was true or not, which goes to the next um, point, which is they say it is undisputed that the respondent suffered repugnant abuse by her husband. Um, and again, they, so they're agreeing that past persecution in the form of abuse has been established. And that's pretty important, too. I don't think that happens in every case. There's plenty of cases where the government may disagree that what happened to the respondent was past persecution. So in this case, really, we go into it with an agreement that the respondent is credible and believable and that she did suffer this terrible abuse, and that constitutes past persecution. And what was the board's analysis, then, of the particular social group, the questions of immutability, particularity, social distinction, the factors that they've identified in MEVG and WGR? So just to recap, they are talking about the particular social group of married women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship. And so they look at, first of all, um, is there, um, do we have an immutable characteristic? And they say, yes, we do have a common immutable characteristic that the members of this group would share. And that includes both the immutable characteristic of gender, um, so women, and then also they say that marital status can be an immutable characteristic, um, particularly in a case like this, where they're unable to leave the relationship. And what they look at for that is, you know, potentially is dissolution of marriage contrary to religious or other moral beliefs? Um, is dissolution even legally possible in the country, I think, is another question. And based on the country information and the respondent's own experiences. And so in this case, they find, yes, we're immutable because... Um, the person can't leave the relationship, she is married, and she's a woman. Um, then they move on to this particularity assessment, um, and they say that all of these terms, married, women, unable to leave the relationship, um, have commonly accepted definitions in Guatemalan society. And that's really what, um, in MEVG, 
NWGR, they say particularity is, is it discrete and does it have definable boundaries and does it have a commonly accepted definition in the society? And so here they say these are common terms. Um, and they also point out that there may be societal expectations about gender and subordination. And then again, they highlight legal constraints about divorce and separation that they point to as coloring the inability to leave the relationship. And they go back to something that was came up in WGR, that you have to look at the country context um, and understand the country conditions in order to really prove this point. And so they make a point of highlighting that. And finally, they address um, social distinction. And they note that, um, you know, what they're looking at is partially evidence of whether the society in question recognizes the need to offer protection to victims of domestic violence, including what laws exist, um, and then whether those laws are effectively enforced. And they particularly rely on the fact that there is strong, unrebutted evidence that Guatemala has a culture of machismo and family violence, and that enforcement of the domestic violence laws is problematic. And so, um, looking again at the country conditions and what frames this to understand if the person can be perceived as a group by society. And they say, yes, uh, in this case, that, you know, Guatemalan society makes distinctions based on the characteristics of being a married woman in a domestic relationship that she can't leave. And you know, what is noteworthy about this case? How is it more than just a fact-specific or narrowly drawn case? Are, are we going to have to fight for every little variation within that social distinction analysis? Well, I think it's noteworthy because we finally have a published decision from the Board of Immigration Appeals that says, yes, domestic violence claims are legitimate and it's cognizable, and that's really important. And I think there's a lot of advocates and clients who've been toiling um, for years making these claims, some successfully some not, and some where adjudicators simply haven't made decisions because there hasn't been any clear guidance to them. And this gives clear guidance. It gives a way for an adjudicator to grant a case, and it lays out um, for our advocates how to frame that social group and how the board is thinking about this, and that there is an openness and an acceptance. Um, and the nice thing is, too, that after MEVG and WGR in February, social group was looking a little murky and people weren't sure. So this is nice too that um, this case comes after that. So it's applying those cases and it just helps say, yes, domestic violence cases can be legitimate. So the question though about whether we have to fight for every distinction, um, I do think there are still challenges for many asylum applicants, particularly people whose fact situations are not you know, neatly parallel to the ones laid out here in ARCG. Um, because, as we talked about at the beginning, they did essentially stipulate that this applicant suffered really terrible abuse. Um, so we don't really have anything laid out in this decision that talks about what about those cases where maybe the person suffered entirely psychological violence and control, which is something that happens a lot in domestic violence situations, would somebody who has that past experience, will that be acknowledged as past persecution in the same way that the abhorrent physical abuse was in this case? 
Um, also, they do talk a lot in this decision about the legal system and the culture in Guatemala of machismo. What about applicants from countries with legal systems where maybe there is stronger domestic violence enforcement, but it's still not fully protecting them? Um, what about, you know, situations where people haven't called the police, which is pretty common also in domestic violence claims where women either are too afraid to reach out and call the police or alternatively, they have a feeling of futility because they have talked to other women who've called the police and nothing has happened, so they don't see the point in doing it. So I think there's still a lot of cases that are going to need to be litigated. I think some adjudicators will be really open to viewing what the board establishes here in ARCG broadly and to kind of seeing that as a big circle that can encompass a lot of cases and a lot of women with similar situations. I also think that there are going to be other adjudicators who are going to look at the facts in ARCG, look at the cases before them, and, you know, really want those cases to neatly fall within the lines and the box established by ARCG. So, I think um, I think there's going to be definitely there's a lot of room, and I don't think the ARCG solves the problem for everyone. So a couple of questions on this change in law, basically, and you know one is whether there's enough here to warrant motions to reopen or remand, depending on the posture of the case on relevant cases. And also, you know, there may be cases where practitioners have, have hesitated to uh, to apply and more than a year has passed. And, you know, would this be a, a way of reconsidering a case that, you know, an organization or attorney has previously um, rejected or, or filed without success? I definitely think there is some room for um, motions to reopen or motions to remand. Again, there was really no clear clarity on this issue before. And so definitely um, in the category of cases that are still pending, one that we have at the university is sitting with the judge waiting for a decision. And we are planning to file a brief, just a short one, saying, hey, this decision came down. Here's how it you know, directly parallels our case and really make a motion to try to get a decision on that case based on this decision in ARCG. And I think people who do have pending cases, definitely you need to um, raise this and make sure that it's incorporated. And I would say the same thing if the case is pending at the board or even at a circuit court, definitely supplementing your briefing and bringing this case to the attention of the adjudicators and potentially for a remand. Um, whatever you think is appropriate. I think in terms of looking at, you know, cases that maybe you didn't take on or that seemed questionable or that are past the one-year filing deadline, I think that still, that has to be more of a strategic decision on a case-by-case basis. I would say for cases that clearly fit into the social group laid out in ARCG, um, it may make sense to file past the one-year deadline. For a case that doesn't as clearly fit, I think you have to look at everything else around sort of a one-year filing deadline exception. What are the other factors in the case? Um, What are the risks to the client if that case is denied? Um, The same factors that we generally examine. But, you know, particularly for motions to reopen, um, if a case was denied, there's really not too much to lose in filing that motion. Um, because the worst case scenario is you end up 
back in the same position where the case is denied. And the best case scenario is you may get um, reconsideration and an opportunity for that client. And I was interested that the government still insisted on a that the case be you know reviewed by the immigration judge and where advocates had filed amicus briefs saying, look, you know this case has been proven in every regard. You know, go ahead, board, and decide and grant the asylum. What's your sense of that in terms of like why that happened or or what perhaps the government is still concerned about, if anything? You know, I I agree that I think it's a little bit puzzling because the stated reason that the court gives is, um, well, the applicant needs to demonstrate that the Guatemalan government was unable or unwilling to control the private actor. Um, and then they talk about the shifting burden and that Department of Homeland Security may be able to show a change in circumstances in the country or internal relocation. Um, but we have all of this language throughout the decision about um, her attempts to relocate and how those failed, about the failure of the police to protect her. So. I think it's a little odd to remand for that reason, and I'm not totally clear why they did it. Um, you know, I don't know all of the facts and circumstances of the case, so I don't know if the government has some other secret concerns that they just aren't revealing here, but I, I'm guessing that it's probably going to go back. They're going to check biometrics, and they'll get a new decision because everything that's in the record indicates that the issue that the Guatemalan government is unable to control the husband. So it's it's an odd part of the decision. Okay. So uh, let's wrap this up with any sort of advice or takeaway on how advocates can prepare a case for success under this decision. Again, I think um, I think this is really good news overall for domestic violence claims. And I think as with anything, the me- the most steps you can take to draw parallels between your client's factual situation, the situation in your client's country, and the facts situation that's laid out in ARCG is going to really help the adjudicator feel like they can grant your case under the same theory. I don't think the social group has to exactly match, but certainly if your social group essentially is what's laid out in ARCG, I would use that to your advantage. I think also, though, one of the things that the amicus brief and that advocates around the country are sort of advocating is that um, gender-defined social groups, they don't need to be this narrow, that this um, we can be broader, that gender, I mean, in a lot of cases, the reason it's domestic violence is about power and control, and that, in a lot of cases, has to do with gender. And so they are, there are people arguing that we need broader social group definitions. And so I think that's the other takeaway. Um, One place to look for that is the amicus brief that was filed in this case. Um, It's available through the American Immigration Lawyers Association. There's also a really great blog post up on Asylumist. um, That's asylumist.org that also talks about um, sort of broader gender-based social groups. The one other thing I'll say, though, is that um, I think there are, with the increase in individuals coming to the U.S. to seek asylum from Central America, a number of those people are women, women with children, and young women who, in addition to fleeing gang-related violence, in many cases may have been forced to be girlfriends or 
um, otherwise forced into relationships with gang members. And I think there may be room, I mean, there definitely is room for claims for those women that directly flow out of the precedent here in ARCG. I do think that um, adjudicators may feel a little more nervous about those cases. And so it's really important for advocates to frame them within the language of this decision so that the adjudicator can feel comfortable granting that. Well, thank you very much. This has been a conversation with Emily Good from the Advocates for Human Rights.